Today's reading is from Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that the one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, there by killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built in the foundation of, of apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. This is the word of the Lord, please be seated. Those are some powerful, powerful words. We are continuing uh, this week in the book of Ephesians, and we're looking at the latter half of what was just read, verses 19 through 22. But before really getting into it, I, I think it's important that we, we understand kind of where we're at with what Frank was saying last week. After all of what Paul has said in the book of Ephesians, that the victory has been realized in Christ, that we have been brought into this new community, that God through his grace has brought us who were dead into life, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has accomplished. We are now being built into this new family. We see the outgrowth of the good news of Jesus, the good news of his victory, is this reconciled community. And as Frank talked about last week, and as he did a great job of going through we recognize that the hostility that divides us in Christ has been killed. The dividing wall that separates us from one another has been removed. And God has formed out of two, one. Last week we looked and we seen that reconciliation is an essential part of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is one of reconciliation, and this week we get to see this beautiful vision of the reconciled kingdom lived out. We get to see the full scope and look at what does it mean when he says that this is his new community. I want to read again, just starting in verses 19, going through 22. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He starts out by saying, you are no longer strangers and aliens. And although that might be a weird way of putting that, in, in the current, in the time that Paul was writing, these had very specific meanings. He wasn't talking about Martians. He wasn't just talking about people you don't know. These had very uh, specific, uh, even political meanings as to kind of the type of person who was living in the land at the time and living in the land up until this time. Um, and they're not very dissimilar to the kinds of categories we have for people who are living in our country. Now, 
When they're making reference to a stranger, what they really mean is they're making reference to somebody who is there without really any legal reason for being there or even legal permission for being in their land. So very similar to the undocumented population that we have living with us right now. But they are strangers. These are undocumented people living in the land. These are people who have no real legal standing or legal reason for being in the land of Israel. That's what they mean when they're talking about a stranger. An alien is, is somebody who is a foreigner, uh, but is there kind of with legal recourse. Um, so similar to either a, a legal refugee or somebody who is traveling amongst them with like a, a visa or something like that. Um, these were two different types of foreigners living in their community. And what's significant about this is from a religious standpoint, there was only so much that these people groups could participate in in the life of the Jewish faith at that time. The way that the um, temple was set up was there was multiple courts that you could kind of enter into, and different things happened in these courts. And as it would make sense, the further in, the more aligned with kind of what they saw were the most important aspects of the Jewish faith were in these inner courts. So people who were strangers or aliens at the time were only allowed in the outer courts. They were only allowed to participate in certain aspects of uh, whether it's... um, sacrifices or things like that, they were only allowed to participate in certain aspects of it. Um, They were seen really in many ways in a prejudicial way because they were outsiders. So they were no longer, they were not able to participate in the same way that others could. What's so radical about what Paul is saying here is that through what Christ has accomplished, through this new reality where the two, the Gentile and the Jew, have been, were once kind of two unique entities. Now in Christ, they're one. And the way he's envisioning this is kind of talking about this reality. He's saying, you know, in a very real way, those people that you see as outsiders that are only allowed in the outer courts, those people who are strangers and aliens and separated from what you thought was kind of the community of God, are now fellow citizens with you. Every right and access that you have, they now have as well. You've been brought into this incredible community. There's no longer any separation. And it goes on to say that this was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ being the cornerstone, which is one of the ways that Paul is saying that this isn't just a new idea. It wasn't like God ran out of ideas and was like, oh, I guess I'll try this one. This was his plan from the beginning. That if we were paying attention to what the prophets were saying, if we were paying attention to what Christ was saying, if we were listening to the apostles, we would know that this was always the plan. This isn't just a new idea, but this is always the plan. We've been brought into this new community. And I love what Paul does here. Paul does this all the time. Because initially he's kind of referring to kind of the temple as this thing that they know. Saying now strangers and aliens who once were separated from it are now brought in. He then shifts the metaphor. He does this all the time. He kind of starts with one metaphor and then warps it to deepen the meaning. Because he's no longer actually even talking about the temple that they knew, but he's talking about a new temple. Not one that's built out of brick, not one that's built out of stone, but one that's built out of the people whom God has brought into this community. And he actually says, not just was this a plan, but now you are being built together as a community for God by the Holy Spirit. This is a metaphor that Paul uses a number of times, most notably in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17. Let me read that real quick. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. What's oftentimes missed in this passage, why I wanted to point out this one specifically, is that in the Greek, this is in the plural. This is put in the plural. Now, in English, we don't really have a way of delineating between the second person plural and the second person singular, unless you're Texan. So I'm going to read that. Can you put it up again? In Texan. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? 
If any one of y'all destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For, God, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. It's one of the very few things that speaking temp- Texan actually makes more clear. So we have this reality that God is building his people into his temple. And that this is something that's important. This isn't a side note. I mean, it goes as far in 1 Corinthians to say that if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. That's not loose language. This is something important to God. This is something that I would say is even essential. What's also important to note is the process of reconciliation and unity is the work of the Spirit. That the way this happens is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we see the beautiful vision of what we see is this, and we can put this up. The reconciled, unified kingdom is the culmination of God's redemptive work and cosmic victory. The gospel is the good news of corporate reconciliation. I'll say that one more time. The reconciled, unified kingdom is the culmination of God's redemptive work and cosmic victory. The gospel is the good news of corporate reconciliation. John Perkins, if you're familiar with John Perkins, he was a man who was a part of the civil rights movement. Um, He was beaten within an inch of his life during the process of that and later went on to be one of the greatest advocates for racial reconciliation within the church, uh, working with a number of community developers, working with a number of churches, has written a number of books, is truly just a remarkable man, what God did in his life. And he wrote in this book called One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race, this. But as I come closer to the end of my journey, I am aware that community development can only take us so far, because this is a gospel issue. The problem of reconciliation in our country and in our churches is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. This is a God-sized problem. It is one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. So I wanted to begin with something that I believe most of us can agree on. I don't want to say all because I don't want to speak for everybody. But most of us can agree that as we look at this reality this beautiful community that God is forming through Christ, that we can look at that and say, yes, that is good. That is something that we want. That is something that is beautiful. And I want us to keep that in mind as we continue. Because it's important that we continually remind ourselves that this is good news, as hard as this is to accomplish. And that this ultimately is worth it. But what's hard about this reality is that as we look in the church, we recognize that this is not necessarily true of the church. It doesn't surprise us that it's not true elsewhere, but it should surprise us a little bit that this isn't true in the church. So we have to ask the question, what is it that keeps us from this? What keeps us from this beautiful vision that Paul is writing here that God through Paul is declaring is the ultimate culmination of his good news and his good work in the world. What is it that keeps us from this? Well, I want to walk through four things that I think impede this reality. First is that we neglect the leave and cleave reality of unity. I love how Frank last week made the connection because I think it's it's an implicit and intentional connection that Paul has between what he's talking about here in Ephesians 2 and what he talks about in merit with regards to marriage in Ephesians 5. The marriage and the unity of the two becoming one is an incredible metaphor and picture of what this should look like because it also gives us insights into why this is so challenging. When Lauren and I got married, we were told that this is this incredible and beautiful thing that we're going to grow in intimacy, we're going to grow in trust, we're going to grow in love for one another. And that's true, and it is incredible. And God has used that. But there were times when we didn't realize how challenging that might be because there were certain things that we didn't know about each other before we got married that might have been nice to know, Um, (laughs) mainly for her sake. And I'll just give you one example because I... 
shouldn't give you more than this example. Um, my wife, I didn't know this about her before we started dating and before we got married, but she loves to share food. She loves it. For her, this is just a wonderful thing. We go out to eat. She just envisions this perfect thing where we just get a cheese board. And we just eat off of it, dabble in it, talk, laugh, have a great time. And by the way, a cheese board is an appetizer, not an entree, but that's besides the point. We'll do this, and, and this just gives her so much life. I would call this one of her love languages. Sharing food is a love language. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's great. Except sharing food happens to be one of my hate languages. <laughs> this is a new book idea that I'm trying to put out. I've got some ideas. All of it's related to food. So what she sees is this beautiful moment where we're sharing this food, we're eating, we're talking, we're laughing. It's great. What I'm experiencing and what I hear is you're saying, okay, so we're not going to get two plates. We're going to get one plate. And then I'm going to give you some of that food. And I have to figure out what's okay for me to take and what I have to leave. And so this whole time, she's having this great time. I am stressed out by the politics of sharing this cheese board. I'm looking at it. I'm like, I don't know if I can have this much food. I've already had these many slices of cheese. I've already had this much prosciutto or whatever it is. Um, she can have the olives. That's fine. And I'm stressed out about all of this stuff, trying to figure this out. And so in this moment, although, yes, there is this beautiful picture of the two becoming one, it feels pretty tense. We both are met with the reality that for that to happen, we're going to have to budge a little bit. And so, in a practical way, what usually happens is that sometimes we share food and sometimes we get our own plates. And in reality, we usually share food and I suck it up and deal with it. <laughs> and I like eat cereal when I get home or something like that. <laughs> That's what makes this so challenging. And, and Frank talked about it last week. That we can have this vision for what a reconciled community looks like. But if we're really honest with ourselves, what reconciliation really means is that other people are going to assimilate to what we like. Is that we get to keep everything that we like and everybody else has to change. That's what, in real terms, makes this so challenging. But what's interesting about the way Paul is talking about this is that he is not talking about assimilation. He's not saying that the Jews get to keep their identity as Jews and the, the Gentiles just have to become Jewish. He says, no, both leave and form a new identity. Both leave their former selves and are brought into this new self, into this new reality of Christ and his new community. I think one of the reasons we struggle in a practical way with unity and reconciliation is that we just want the other to assimilate into our identity. We love this idea. We would love to be a reconciled community, but we don't want to change the kind of music we play. We don't want to change the kind of things that we eat. We don't want to change where we live. We don't want to change the, all this stuff. We don't want to change any of it. And once they're willing to change their stuff, maybe we'll change our stuff. And it creates a real problem. And, and here's, the, here's the truth. Like, the, the Bible talks about this on both sides, that both sides, in some way or shape or form, are leaving their identity that they find elsewhere and bringing it into Christ. Both the far and the near, the privileged and the underprivileged, the, the, the weak and the strong, everybody is leaving and coming into Christ. The principle is the same. However, what also makes this challenging is the second point that I'm going to make, is that although it's true for people who are of privilege and those who are underprivileged that they both need to come together and form a new identity, the Bible speaks differently towards the privileged, that it is not equal weight of responsibility. The second thing that makes this challenging is we deceive ourselves about our privilege 
and the challenge it poses to following Christ. Now, I know I just used a word that has some charge to it, that has some baggage to it. That privilege is one of those things thrown around either kind of on one side or the other as either a positive or a negative. And I want to kind of wash away all of that because we need to recognize that the Bible recognizes this reality. This isn't a new idea. This isn't my idea. The Bible recognizes the fact that some people were born with a lot and some people were born with a little. Some people were born with advantages and some people were born without advantages. The nature of how that shifts changes over time, but the reality of that is the same. And although the principles apply to both, the call and the way the Bible talks to each group is different. So we deceive ourselves about our privilege and the challenge it poses to following Christ. And the truth is, the way the Bible talks to those with privilege is challenging and it's hard to hear. Matthew 19, 24 says this, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Let that sit with you for a little bit. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I was really confronted with this reality last year when um, I was planning uh, the trip that I took with a few others from our church to Ethiopia. And we were going there to connect with some of the people with Hope for Children in Ethiopia. It was this incredible trip that we got to go on. It was me, it was uh, Ben Bear, it was a guy named Matt Chase, and then it was Yasso Sigaye, who is Ethiopian, who also has dual citizenship and is a citizen here in the U.S. as well. And we were planning the trip, and, and like I, I'm really curious about other places. Any places mentioned, I'll like Google it and see what it's like. I'm just very interested in this stuff. And so I was a little excited on the plane ride over, looking at all the plane tickets that we were going to be able to go through somewhere in Europe. You just don't get to go to Europe very often. And so, you know, looking at what's the cheapest flight, but hoping that there's maybe a layover long enough for us to leave the airport and go to some pub or something like that, have a great time within reason. <laughs> and I'm thinking about this, and that's just, that's just the way I was relating to it. And then I got a, a text from Ayasu. Because he knew I was about to purchase the tickets. And he says, hey, I know you're thinking about purchasing the tickets. Can you just make sure to avoid Europe? And I was like, why? Wouldn't that be so fun? And he's like, well, when I go through Europe, I get searched. I get stopped. Every bag gets torn apart. I get treated just not well when I go through Europe. And so it's just going to be a lot easier for me if we avoid Europe. And I was confronted with this thing. Because it was one of those moments where I realized it wouldn't have even occurred to me. The thought didn't even occur to me. And it's not because I don't care about him. It just didn't occur to me because I have something that the Bible would talk about as privilege. The luxury of not having to worry about privilege is privilege. To treat reconciliation as a slow endeavor is privilege. To relegate justice issues to merely the political realm and to not make them gospel issues is an indication of privilege. The fact that when my wife and I and my family drive down I-8 to San Diego and go through a checkpoint, the fact that I have absolutely zero concerns as to whether or not they're going to think I'm a citizen is privilege. The fact that when I get pulled over, the only concern I have is that I might get a ticket, is privilege. The fact that I can run at night with a hoodie on and not cause any cause for alarm is privilege. The fact that I can apply for a job and not be concerned if I will be offered only 80% of a competitive salary is privilege. And if you're anything like me, that means that you have some privilege too. If we deceive ourselves about this, then we deceive ourselves about how hard it is for us to enter in the kingdom of heaven, follow Christ, and really participate in what God envisions as this reconciled community. See, the truth is, having privilege comes with an overwhelming advantage. And we don't have the time to get into it, but this is not an equal playing field, this world. If we've been born in a certain place at a certain time, 
We have so much more advantage than others who are born at a different place, different time, different family structure, different education, all of those things. It comes with an overwhelming advantage, but because it comes with an advantage, it comes with a disadvantage in the kingdom of heaven. What is an asset in this current kingdom of man is a liability in the kingdom of God. The story that sets up this verse that says it is harder for a camel to enter the, the eye of the needle is this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. We don't really know much about this rich young ruler except that he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler of something. We don't know anything else. He doesn't come up again. We don't meet him again. He comes through and he's asking, and I think he's asking a sincere question. He's asking Jesus. He says, Rabbi, what do I need to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? I think, he, I think it's a sincere question. I don't think he's trying to test Jesus. I don't think he's trying to do anything like that. I think he's sincerely wanting to know. And Jesus says, well, what have you done? Have you followed the law of God? Have you done all these things? And he says, yes, I've done all these things. I follow the Ten Commandments. I participate regularly in what we're supposed to be doing in kind of religious Jewish practices, stuff like that. And Jesus says, well, that's great. That's really good. It's like, so what I want you to do is I want you to go home. I want you to sell everything that you have, and I want you to give it to the poor. And at that moment, it says the rich young ruler went away sad because he had so much to lose. And that's when this comes up. Now, on the one hand, I think we can, I think it is true we can overstate that and make this something about prescription and say, okay, if you have money, you have to sell everything. However, there is some truth to it across the board. That if we've been born with privilege, if we've been born with wealth, if we've been born kind of in this kind of uh, majority class or culture, however we want to put it, to follow Jesus, we have to give it all up. We have to sell it all. We have to realize that all the assets that we thought that we were building to serve ourselves are no longer ours, but God's. He can do whatever he wants with them. And that is hard. And that's what Jesus is saying, that for people to do that willingly, for people to do that without prodding or anything like that, is really what he would say impossible. A camel to entering through the eye of the needle, by the way, is not a possible thing. Jesus is saying something that's absurd. And they follow it up with this. It's like, well, if that's true, then who can be saved? And what he says is after that is he says, what is impossible to man is possible to God. And this is something we have to recognize because if we deceive ourselves about our privilege, we're going to deceive ourselves about what we need with the Holy Spirit. I think one of the biggest reasons why we don't fully see a reconciled community is because reconciliation is always being driven by the bottom. By those that don't have. And as long as it's driven by those that don't have, reconciliation will not ever be a reality within the church. This is a matter of us giving up of ourselves, selling all that we have for the sake of following Christ and living into this beautiful gospel vision of a reconciled community. And we have to recognize that without the Holy Spirit working in us, this won't happen. The third thing that makes this challenging is that we allow our view of others to be shaped by the world and not by the Bible. Jamie Smith, or James K.A. Smith, um, who wrote this book uh, that just came out called Awaiting the King, wrote this uh, in an article about this book. It says, in the American context in the 1970s and 1980s, we acquired a theology of culture that, rather suddenly, made us care about engaging in public political life. In fact, we might have even had quite confident visions of how we were going to march into the public square and transform culture because we were equipped with what we knew to be this capacious, wise Christian worldview in which the gospel had something to say to every sphere of life. However, I think we overestimated how effective our ideas would be, and we underestimated the deformative power of cultural currents that were already in the water in the public square. So we marched out to transform culture 
And it turns out that culture ended up transforming us. Instead of transformation, what we got is our own assimilation. Has anybody uh, ever gotten a roommate off of Craigslist? Oh, that's a random question after that quote. <laughs> so having kids is like getting a roommate off of Craigslist. <laughs> and you know, fortunately, we've lucked out. Our kids are great, but there's risk involved. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get. You don't get to meet them. You don't get to vet them at all before they join your home and become your roommate. And overall, it's been an overwhelming blessing. Don't get me wrong. However, one of the things that I wish we could have vetted or worked through before they joined our family is maybe a little more respect for the furniture that we keep in our home. <laughs> they just don't seem to care the way we care. And I think it's because they don't understand things like money. I think that's why. All that said, because we have four of them running around our home, uh, we have had to go through a lot of furniture in our nine years of being married. We've had to go through a lot of furniture. Um, and uh, what's been interesting is over the years, as we've had to buy new furniture, I have become more and more picky and opinionated about the kind of furniture that I want in our home. And I have n it's, it's ridiculous that I care the way that I care about these things. I have no knowledge of it. If you know my wife, she is very good at this stuff. She actually studies it, researches it. Like she has an incredible eye for design, all these things. I have none of that stuff. I have no expertise, but I do have an opinion. Okay? I love like mid-century modern furniture. I don't just want a chair. I want an Eames chair. I want all of our furniture to have hairpin legs. I had to look these things up. I want all of that to look like that. And I begin to wonder, and I begin to ask myself, why? I have no knowledge. I have no dog in the fight. In fact, my practical side would say we should get super cheap furniture. And if you know anything about mid-century modern furniture, it's the opposite of super cheap. But there's a part of me that just wants it. And I began to ask myself, why do I want this? Why, in my vision of how our house looks, does it need to look like this? I haven't studied it. I haven't gone to school about it, anything like that. So I wonder, why do I care? And I start to think about it. It's because I go to coffee shops all the time where this is the kind of furniture that they decorate with. I watch TV shows and movies where this is what I see. I have inhabited these spaces. I have participated in these habits that have presented this image of the good chair or the good couch or the good credenza. And for whatever reason, I begin to want these things without realizing that I want them. I begin to envision these things without realizing that I'm envisioning them. I share that because I think that's what Jamie Smith is talking about here. And I think that that's what we need to see. And it's one of the things that we, as a church, and I myself, have sadly become so oblivious to. The truth is Satan does not need our belief or our worldview. He doesn't need for us to believe in him or have a worldview that's shaped by him. All he needs are our habits. That's it. He just needs our habits. And with our habits, he can do to us whatever he wants. He just needs our habits. And so when we come into this world, we come into the the, the political sphere, the cultural sphere, the social sphere, just any sphere as we interact with the other, if we think that our worldview is going to be strong enough to, to overcome the habits that we regularly go to, then we, as the old westerns say, have brought a knife to a gunfight. We are completely outmatched. Let me give you a more specific example. We wake up in the morning, we check our news feed which, by the way, has been algorithmically tailored to our political and cultural biases. On the way to work, we listen to talk radio or podcasts that usually reinforce our chosen biases. Once we're there, we engage in conversation, whether they're real or virtual, which, once again, either reaffirm our chosen biases or kind of create straw men theories out of the other side. We come home and we watch a 24-hour news cycle, which is basically just a bunch of people yelling at each other. We do this. We regularly participate in this. 
And then we become surprised that our view of other people is different from what the Bible says. Because this is how it happens. None of us set out to view people differently than the scriptures. I think we have great intentions of that, but we don't recognize that what we do on a regular basis shapes how we see other people. And so we may have entered into these, these conversations with this idea that we are going to be doing this, but over time, the habits that we constantly put in our lives, this rhythm that we're constantly participating in, we will get to this point where we are so convinced and we feel like this view of the others, this view of the good life is so true. And it is so, so wrong. And it is so anti-Christian. And it doesn't happen right away. It happens over time. Because Satan only needs our habits to shape the way we see one another. To get even more specific, since this passage makes mention of this people group and these people groups, we need to look at the way the church can oftentimes talk about the immigrant and the refugee. And before everybody gets upset, I did not say immigration or refugee politics. I said immigrants and refugees. Because that's who it's talking about. That in Christ, there's no longer stranger. There's no longer alien. We have all been brought in as fellow citizens. When we look at it from a biblical worldview, if we look at it from the way the Bible talks about this group and how the church is supposed to relate to it, we start at a very baseline level that these are people made in the image of God. That no matter what, every single person is made in the image of God. And out of respect for God, because we revere Him, we respect the people that He made. There is a baseline level of respect, at the very least, afforded to any of these people groups. Secondly, and one thing that we oftentimes overlook, that one of the, a book called Christians at the Border by Danny Carroll talks about all the time, is that many of these people, specifically the people coming over our southern border, are Christians. It's not just that they are image bearers, but these are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should change the dynamic of how we think of them and how we relate with them. Further, God calls the people of God to radical hospitality. Hospitality literally means the love of the stranger. Further, he calls the privileged to seek justice and care for the underprivileged. And specifically, to make it even more pointed, specifically names strangers and aliens as people groups that the church should care for. The church should seek justice for. That is how the church should be talking about immigrants and refugees. Regardless of all the policies and all the confusing things surrounding that, at the very least, that's how the church should talk about it. But that is not, sadly, how the church talks about them so oftentimes. That is not the primary way we see them. We see them as just basically illegal. And I want us to think about that for a little while. Our whole view of a human being, somebody that God made, who is sometimes a brother and sister in Christ, who is at a severe disadvantage to us, we just view them as illegal. We talk to them as illegal. We process all of the things that we have to do with them through their legal standing. Think about that. What a terrible way to view a human being. And I get that the world is going to do that because the world is broken by sin. That is something the church should never be a part of. But this is what's happened. We have brought a knife to a gunfight. We have not taken seriously that our view of others has been more significantly shaped by the habits that we involve ourselves in and not by the Bible. And that's a problem in a world that is reconciled, in a church that is a reconciled community. The last problem that we have that, that really makes this challenging is that we think reconciliation is nice but not essential. That this is an offshoot of the gospel, not central to it. Once again, this is an outgrowth of privilege. The fact that we have the luxury of saying that it's not essential is, in fact, an aspect of privilege. 
This misinterpretation uh, basically misinterprets what the Bible is saying here in Ephesians. It, it, it kind of ignores the place that God's whole mission and vision for his reconciled community holds. If we notice, God didn't slowly dismantle the dividing wall. This wasn't a slow process. This wasn't a careful process. He destroyed it. He destroyed it finally and swiftly through his death and is now building a new community. And there's no indication in the scripture that this is something that he thought was nice in the future, but a reality that he expected to see now. This is not just something that will happen in kingdom come, but this is something that happens now. But oftentimes we think reconciliation is nice, but not essential. I've got to tell you, I love this church, and, and, and I know that this has been a hard and kind of heavy sermon to hear. It's been a hard and heavy one to prepare for and to deliver. But I love this church. I love this community. I love the people that I get to work with. Uh, they have much cooler shoes than me. Um, I love the pastors. I love the elder team that I get to serve with. I love the, the people within our community. I love the interactions that we have, the incredible things that God is doing through this, this community. And because of that love, there's been something that's just been bothering me and gnawing at me. As I've prepared for this and as I've, as I've done this, and, and um, similarly to how if you love your home and recognize that there's sewage seeping up through the walls, you don't just put a coat of paint on it or shift around some paintings, something like that, when we recognize this reality and what's been, what I'm going to share has been bothering me, we need to realize that there's some deep work that we need to do, that I need to do in my own heart, in my own life. So this is what's been bothering me. I asked myself the question, why do I feel so comfortable here? I feel so comfortable here. This is the church that I would attend whether I'm working here or not. There's not a bit of this experience that is off-putting to me. But I know that there are people in our community, whether it's because of their skin color, their socioeconomic background, their education background, or their legal standing who do not feel comfortable being here. That's what's bothering me. As I'm just being totally candid and totally honest, that's what's been gnawing at me as I've prepared for this, is that I feel comfortable, but others don't. If I'm reading this text right, and I think that I am, that that is not something that should happen in the church. John Perkins continues his quote that I read earlier. I want to read the rest of it. I'm going to read what I read and then kind of continue in it because I think he gets to something here. But as I come closer to the end of my journey, I'm aware that community development can only take us so far. Because this is a gospel issue. The problem of reconciliation in our country and in our churches is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. This is a God-sized problem. It is one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. And then it continues. It says, and it requires that we make some uncomfortable confessions. G.K. Chesterton said, it isn't that they can't see the solution, it's that they can't see the problem. The problem is that there is a gaping hole in our gospel. We have preached a gospel that leaves us believing that we can be reconciled to God, but not reconciled to our Christian brothers and sisters who don't look like us. Brothers and sisters with whom we are, in fact, one blood. What I recognize, at least in my own heart, is that there, there's something there that we need to address. We as a church, both broadly and specifically, have to confront. And the way the Bible talks about this and the way the Bible starts with this is through repentance. So how do we respond to this? We start with repentance. We repent that our privilege blinds us to the concerns and urgency of the vulnerable. We repent of the racist and xenophobic attitudes and actions that are currently present in the church as well as those of the church's past. We repent that we have allowed our view of the other to be shaped by something other than the Spirit, and that's shown in our actions. We repent that we have not sold our fortunes of privilege for the sake of following Jesus. We start 
with repentance. After this, and I think this is going to be one of the best practices we do if we actually do it, we need to take an inventory of our habits. We need to think about what are we regularly involving ourselves in? What is truly shaping the way we see the other? We need to either remove or at the very least lessen the habits that falsely shape us and replace them with gospel-centered habits. And these are just a few suggestions. (laughs) First one's obvious. We should start by reading the Bible. It's incredible what the Bible says about the other. Particularly the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, 1 Peter and Ephesians. And what it has to say about the stranger and about the other. And what it means about having a reconciled community. We need to read books that challenge the popular understanding of the other. Christians at the Border by Danny Carroll. One Blood by John Perkins. One New Man by Jarvis Williams. The Dangerous Act of Worship by Mark Labberton. Letters from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King. And most importantly, enter into relationship with the other. This is the best habit we can have to fight against the way the world is shaping us. Actually enter into relationship with the other. Serve in some of our outward focus ministry. Go to public parks and libraries. Ride the city bus every once in a while. And do with no other intention of listening and, if necessary, repenting. Participate in relationships. And the last is to seek out and celebrate moments of kingdom reconciliation. And I'll end with this story. Um, for a lot of different reasons that I will not go into, a few years ago, my wife and I began fostering kids specifically who were unaccompanied minors from Central America coming across the border and that needed just a place, a, a safe place to be while they were being kind of processed through the immigration process here in the country. This was something funded through the government. This was not like an underground thing. This was something that we signed up for, got processed through, all that stuff and did. And in the course of this, we were able to invite, uh, over time, four different little kids into our home. And I got to tell you, when they show up, the difference is unnerving. You have in our home one of the most vulnerable people in the world. With living in the house of some of the most privileged people in the world. And although we were trying to be deferential, we were trying to do all that stuff, it was obvious, the difference. I'm going to try to hold myself together for this. I did not hold myself together for service. Um, so we did this, and, and, and despite all the attempts that we made, there was always this kind of difference, whether it was me trying to speak to them in my broken Spanish but not really being able to connect whether it was cultural differences, whether just the way they felt was different and they were scared and all that stuff. But at night when we we would put them to bed, I I would ask them a question. I'm not sure if I was even allowed to do this, but I did it anyways. And asked them if I could pray for them. I just said, hey, can I pray for you? And it was was a moment that I will never forget. The, The times that I spent praying with these little kids. You know, I would pray. Nuestro Señor, protege este niño. Cuando ellos ustedes están en este país, sea la seguridad. I would pray these things over them. Say, eres llena de love, de amor. <laughs> I'm speaking broken Spanish now. I would say these things over them. And I would pray these things. And it was remarkable the difference that happened. Because up until that point, they either treated me as though I wasn't there or they were confused, or they were antithetical or anything. But in that moment, I just see these kids ball up. They close their eyes so tight. They bow their heads so tight. And the reason why I remember this so clearly, because in that moment, I was no longer in the kingdom of this world. In that moment, I got a glimpse, just a small glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. Because at that moment, I was no longer the privileged. They were no longer the vulnerable. I was no longer legal and they no longer illegal. I was no longer just a citizen and them a stranger. At that moment, we were just both kids talking to their dad. And we got to see just briefly what the reconciled vision of humanity looked like. We got to pray. We got to enter into the space and realize this is what he's talking about. And it changed me. 
transformed the way I understand the gospel, getting to pray with these little kids and recognizing that in God's kingdom there is no longer stranger, there's no longer alien, there's no longer documented or undocumented, there's no longer illegal or legal, they're just fellow citizens, fellow heirs, fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God. And I realized in that moment that as long as we keep that from our church, as long as that is not something we see on a regular basis, we miss the good news of Jesus. We miss what it looks like to love. We miss what it looks like for God to change us through love. And that is my deep prayer for us, is that we would get to see just a glimpse of this reconciled community of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you, God, just repenting. God, the privilege that so many of us enjoy, Lord, has sadly blinded us, Lord, to the central call that you make for us to love our neighbor, to care for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the prisoner. God, that given where we are, Lord, and, and, and all of these things, Lord, that we have ignored that in many ways. And Lord, I know many of us didn't even do so with intentionality. I know that my heart and intentions are for this vision, but Lord, I know that my actions are so oftentimes counter to it. Lord, so we confess those things. We repent of that reality. And God, we ask you, not really even knowing fully the way forward, to transform our hearts, Lord. This is a work that only your spirit can do in the life of this church. Lord, we pray that as we sing together and as we worship together, Lord, as we participate in the same common meal, Lord, we remember that there are no longer strangers, there are no longer aliens, there are no longer the other. We are all one, united in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.